Well, if you're reading through 2 Samuel and you come to verse number 26, you should immediately in your minds turn back to previous chapters. The mention is made here in verse number 26, and Joab fought against Rabbah. And you think to yourself, well, have I not heard of that before? Well, you go back to chapter 11 and the verse number 1, and it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. That's before all that is about to transpire regarding David and his sin. Indeed, you go back one chapter further to chapter 10, and David seeking to show kindness to Hanan, the son of the king of Ammon, after the father's death. And of course, you know the account there, how the Ammonites treated David's men with disdain, and they were indeed embarrassed and treated with great scorn by the people of Ammon. And so verse number 6 says, And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, the children of Ammon sent and hired and so forth. There is then this battle, and this series of battles with the children of Ammon, the Ammonites. And so when you go back to 2 Samuel 12 and you read of Rabbah once more, that is the clue for us to help us, to help us properly understand what is taking place here. The place, Rabbah, it is the chief city of the Ammonites. It is strategically important in all of these battles if you're going to overthrow the Ammonites. As always the case in war, it is important to overthrow the chief city. The people in chapter 12, 6, 26 and following, well, of course, you have Joab and David. But what is significant here, over in chapter 11, verse number 1, it says, Then David sent Joab. And when you get back across to chapter 12, you will then find chapter 12, verse 27, And Joab sent for David. And see how those things come together? Chapter 11, David sends Joab, and now chapter 12, Joab is calling for David. The period of time between these two events is, of course, very significant. You have the fact in chapter 11, verse 1, that David stays in Jerusalem. Now, it is the fact, just as a passing comment, the fact that we come back to Rabbah at the end of chapter 12 is another illustration of the fact that David staying in Jerusalem was part of the cause of his sin. He left off his duty, and as he left off his duty, so then temptation came in other areas. But be as it may, he stays at Jerusalem. We then have the account of the sin with Bathsheba and the death of Uriah, all of that in chapter 11. Then in chapter 12, we have the coming of Nathan, to David, verse number 7, thou art the man. David's response, verse number 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. But as we saw last time in this study, we saw that uh, even although David had repented and known forgiveness, yet he still faced the pain of seeing the child die in the chastening hand of God upon him for his sin. Because He had brought blasphemy against the name of the Lord. All of this is happening 
while the war at Rabbah continues. Again, chapter 11, verse number 1, it says there that Joab besieges Rabbah. And then chapter 12, again, verse number 26, and Joab fought against Rabbah of the children of Ammon. Now here, what you've got to appreciate, I believe, is that it refers to him taking the royal city, the chief city, this prominent city. It seems to be the case that in verse number 27, the meaning here is that he had taken control of the water supply of the city. Again, there's some translation difficulties there, some difficult things. It says, and have taken the city of waters. It may well be the case that what's involved there is he's taken the waters that are really feeding the city and their need. The siege is on. And you will think of military strategy. If a city is under siege, they may have food for a time. And if they can keep water coming freshly into the city, they'll be okay to survive for a season. But now in the battles, Joab has taken the city of waters or the water supply for the city. And now there is a problem. And Joab identifies the problem. And the problem is that he may well take the glory for the victory over the city. And that, he understands, will have a problem for the stability of the nation. Now, Joab is one of the most interesting characters in the Old Testament. There are times you look at Joab and you say, there, there cannot be a worse person than Joab in the Bible. And other times... He surprises you. And this is one of the occasions that he comes and surprises us. Now, it may well be he understands there's, uh, there's self-preservation involved in it all. He's a chief general. But he understands that it's vitally important for the nation that David reassumes his rightful place as the leader and the king of the nation. And if he's the one to take the city, then the city will be called after his name, verse number 28. And he's concerned that he will get the glory, and thereby getting the glory, he will see further damage done to the king and to his kingdom. Now, we, we lose sight of this today in our own context, but an unstable king means for an unstable kingdom in those days. So significant was the king in the ruling of the nation and in the military affairs. You're in time of war. You want a strong and a dominant king. So Joab then calls for David. Verse 27, Joab sent messengers to David, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city, and I'm going to put the word in, and you take it. You be the one to lead the final taking of the city. And we know David does that. Verse 28, 29, David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. Uh, I, I certainly took some time thinking through the historical details here and the story and say, well, where do we go with this? How do we properly apply this to a congregation in Malvern in 2023? Well, what is happening here, I believe, is that Joab is calling David to return to his duties, to resume his responsibilities. Remember chapter 11, verse 1, David stays at Jerusalem. But now Joab is calling David and saying, David, it's time for you to return to service. And so what you're seeing at the end of this chapter is, is not an incidental detail of history. It is, if you like, an evidence that the repentance that David has undergone 
is a repentance that is genuine and that is real and that is now being demonstrated in his return to biblical obedience. A return to service, if you like. Biblical restoration. And so you'll see in your outline, I've, I've just some thoughts that come from this portion regarding the subject of biblical restoration. I'm thinking here particularly of perhaps a believer who has fallen into some form of sin and then finds themselves being restored to the Lord's work. Not necessarily in a public service. I'm not thinking of any individual in particular. But I'm looking at a backslider who is then restored. And what does that restoration look like? Now, as we do, we'll see broader application than just that. But that's the context. David has fallen into sin. He's been called out upon his sin. He's been rebuked for his sin. Thou art the man. But he's repented. He's sought forgiveness. He's received forgiveness. And now he's coming back to assume his responsibilities. And the first thing, therefore, to notice is that restoration follows the forgiveness of sins. And this is true. It's true for the unconverted who comes to faith for the first time. And it is true for those who have turned away from God but come back in repentance for their backsliding ways. Restoration follows forgiveness. Another way to put that is that forgiveness does not, the forgiveness of sin does not depend on a restoration to service. Forgiveness is not conditioned upon obedience. This is such an important point. Verse 13 occurs before all that follows. Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. See, sometimes it may be the case, particularly if a believer has succumbed to some particular sin, that they know, well, I'm a Christian. I, I, I ought not to have sinned in this regard. And I'm, I'm sorry for my sin. And so I'm going to take on some significant task and show God that I'm genuine in my forgiveness, and then He'll forgive me. If you've never had that thought, fine. But in my early Christian life, those are my very thoughts. Whenever I fell into sin in some area in my early Christian life, I thought to myself, I must do something to prove to God that I'm serious about repentance. And in my mind, at that point, I presumed that I wouldn't really be forgiven by God until I had proven the seriousness of my repentance. But David has given the words, has given the words by Nathan, those words of assurance, the Lord also hath put away thy sin. But Joab is still at Rabbah. The battle goes on. And David is not where he ought to be at this point. You see, you think of the prodigal. The prodigal son returns to the father and is embraced by the father before he serves the father in the home in any regard. The embrace comes before the restoration to service. You see, the heart of the sweet psalmist of Israel revealed the cause of his forgiveness. Psalm 51, we saw it. But Psalm 51 begins with the words, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. You see, there is the recognition, even for the believer, that we don't enjoy repent, we don't enjoy forgiveness of our present sins 
by earning God's favor. Even as we are believers and we sin as believers, the forgiveness we enjoyed is only in the mercy of God. It's always only in God's mercy. And you've got to live your life like that. Because you may understand, before you're converted, I can't earn God's favor. But you also, as a believer, you will not earn God's favor in forgiveness. His forgiveness is always free. It's always merciful. It's always in the abundance of loving kindness toward us. You see, our future obedience doesn't improve our forgiveness. You can obey for the rest of your lives. You can take yourself into places of, of tremendously diligent and hard service. But you won't improve your forgiveness. You won't ever earn your forgiveness. Your obedience will never lead to your forgiveness. We know it doesn't. It never does. I think there is a slight tangent here to mention regarding the matter of human forgiveness. God forgives us before we demonstrate our forgiveness in obedience. Or sorry, before we demonstrate our repentance in obedience. God forgives us. And we are to forgive others as God in Christ hath forgiven us. And therefore, it's important as God's people that we forgive horizontally, immediately upon the person expressing repentance. Even though it may take time for them to show the proof of that in the days and weeks to come ahead. And so they may live differently in the future. Now that will build trust. But trust and forgiveness are not the same thing. You give forgiveness freely. You don't encourage someone to earn your forgiveness. You forgive as God forgives. But yes, trust may take time to build, but forgiveness should come freely because that is how God has forgiven us. Not through our obedience, not through our righteousness, but freely by His grace we redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. It is Christ's obedience, not ours, that secures our forgiveness. And I am very, very thankful that verse 13 comes before verse 26. If verse 26 comes first, we may have some idea that because David took the city, then God forgave him and was pleased with him. God forgave him first. And so restoration follows forgiveness of sins. But secondly, biblical repentance will lead to restoration and obedience. We are seeing here a, a picture of what it looks like to repent of sin and to walk with God. Well, we saw this before. The Shorter Catechism question number 87, what is repentance unto life? It's a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And so in their Westminster Divines, as they define repentance, they include as an aspect of obedience, an aspect, sorry, of repentance, there is a full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. This is taught in both the Old and the New Testament. Turn, please, to the Psalm 119. Psalm 119, I think we finished here last time. We were here, Psalm 119, in the verse number 59. 
I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. And so those who have been brought to the notion, thou art the man, and they confess their sins, they think upon their ways, the repentance is shown as they turn their feet to God's testimonies and delay not to keep his commandments. Obedience will always come after genuine biblical repentance. It's always the way. The same was taught in Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, and the verse number 8. Taught here in the ministry of John the Baptist. There were those who came to experience his baptism. And John challenged them and says, verse number 8, Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. Now there were external evidences that would demonstrate the reality of someone's repentance. Now remember what I've just said. Forgiveness comes before obedience. But the repentance whereby we come to enjoy forgiveness is a repentance that will always lead to new obedience, full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Understanding this is important today. I don't know how broadly or how widely you listen to various evangelical podcasts and sermons, but there is, there is thankfully, an advance in the preaching of free grace and free justification. But at the same time, I'm not sure it's come with a proper emphasis upon biblical holiness and obedience. You see, free grace and justification without works does not mean that obedience is not important. And the language you hear at times from the evangelicals is language that is often true, but easily misunderstood and misapplied. You might hear words like this, your actions, good or bad, don't change your standing before God. Have you heard that? So, preacher, I think I've heard that from you. Because it's true. Your actions, good or bad, as a believer, do not change your standing as justified before God. Because your justification is based upon Christ's righteousness. And it can't get any better. And it never gets any worse. And so our standing before God and our justification does not change because of our actions, good or bad. We're not more justified or less justified. Someone else might say, well, come just as you are. I'm sure you've heard that. You know, sinner, you don't need to clean yourself up to get to Christ. You don't need to reform your actions before you come to the Savior. Come just as you are. Is that true? Oh, praise God, that's true. Someone else might say, God accepts you just as you are. God is pleased to accept you in Christ just as you are. That one definitely takes some more explanation. That may be true, it may not be true, it needs some definition. But in essence, again, it is essentially true. Just as I am, I come. I come. True statements used by preachers to seek to encourage professions, to remove obstacles in the sinner's mind to professing Christ Jesus. To cause sinners to recognize that Christ receives sinful men in their sin, 
receives them gladly and freely. They are true statements, but they are open to misunderstanding. And they are not the whole story. Those statements, they do not mean that conduct and obedience are unimportant. Your actions, good or bad, don't change your standing before God, does not mean it doesn't matter how you live. But that's how some apply it. It was true in Paul's day, and it's true in our day. They take a true principle, but they apply it incorrectly. And they get the assumption, well, therefore, holiness is not that very important after all. Doesn't mean, these statements, they do not mean that you stay as you are when you come. You come just as you are, but it doesn't mean you stay that way. It also doesn't mean that as you come just as you are, that you're happy as you are when you come. That kind of notion has been used by some broad evangelicals in terms of those who are guilty of the sins in the LGBT community. Come just as you are. I'd be happy to stay that way because Christ receives you just as you are. No need for repentance, no need for obedience. You see how true statements can be misunderstood and how important it is for all of us. And again, if I can say, particularly for you young people growing in these things, it is vitally important that you have a biblical understanding of true conversion. Remind all of us that personal holiness and obedience really do matter. Now, I've put four statements in your outline just to help us work through these particular things. I remind you, I gladly remind you, that justification is God's declaration of our acceptance as being forgiven and justified freely by grace and only because of Christ's righteousness. Justification is something that God does. He declares us righteous. So turn, please, to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. I turn you here deliberately because David is the one that's mentioned the one that's going to Rabbah to take the city and to see the kingdom going forward in a more stable way. Verse 6, David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Psalm 32, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. On the record, not sin, but righteousness. And righteousness that is of God and of grace freely given to us in the gospel. Justification is God's declaration of our being forgiven. If you like to think of the language of Second Samuel, the Lord has put away your sins. But secondly, sinners are justified by faith alone. That's there certainly in verse number 6 of chapter 4, without works. It's there in Abraham, verse 2, If Abraham were justified by works, he hath brought the glory, but not before God. It's not of works. Verse number 4, Now to him that worketh is reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. We know the story. Justification by faith alone. Chapter 3, verse number 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. 
Justification, God's declaration. Sinners justified by faith, not by works. Forgiveness comes before obedience. But thirdly, true faith is always repentant faith. Romans emphasized the importance of believing the gospel. But the definition of faith in the Bible, true faith always involves true repentance. You don't get one without the other. There is no such thing as unrepentant faith or unbelieving repentance. I say no such thing, of course, there is false faith that doesn't include repentance. And there may be remorse that doesn't involve faith. But in the trueness of conversion, you will have faith and repentance always coming together. Repent and believe the gospel. Acts chapter 2, as Peter concludes the sermon on the day of Pentecost, he tells the people to repent for the remission of sins. But when he preaches to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, he says, believe for the remission of sins. Remission of sins coming through faith and coming through repentance because they're always combined. In faith, we turn from sin. And in turning from sin, we turn to Christ for mercy. God, understand this. I think you all do, but let me remind you of that again tonight. But that therefore means something. It means that those who are justified freely by God's grace are those who are repentant believers. Not just believers, but repentant believers. And so the Lord taught the disciples to take up their cross, deny self, and follow me. I earnestly desire that sinners profess Christ Jesus. But I want them to understand the nature of personal salvation. I don't want people to line up, if you like, in the center aisle and say, I believe the gospel without realizing that in trusting in Christ Jesus, they must forsake their sins and pursue a life of new obedience. Seek Christ because you're going to a lost eternity. Seek Christ before, because you're guilty before the law. But seek Christ also because you come to hate sin. Seek Christ because you want to live for God. These are reasons and motivations in the true believer to seek God. We want to do these things because we want to live for God. See, don't think that you can know forgiveness from sin and still say in your sin. That's not the biblical gospel. It's been said before today that people sometimes want Christ without consecration, heaven without holiness, and forgiveness without forsaking their sins. I'm not trying to paint a harsh and austere Christian life. This is not a case of suggesting to you that you're forced to obey so that you can know forgiveness. It's the very opposite of what I'm saying. Forgiveness comes before obedience. But those who seek forgiveness are those who by God's grace are happy to obey and are eager to obey. Because obedience to God is the happiest and the best way to live. And so understand repentance, not as earning forgiveness, but as a demonstration of the hatred of sin. And as we hate sin, we therefore also desire obedience. 
Dear child of God, do you desire to obey God today? Is your heart's desire to please the Lord and to do those things that are according to His Word? You see, if you have that desire, praise God for His marvelous grace. The desire is of God's grace. He works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So perhaps you're wondering what you can sleep on tonight and thank God for. Thank God for the desire to obey His Word. That is a wonderful token of God's grace. Be thankful that by God's grace you've come to hate sin and to seek mercy and desire to walk with God. And if there is no desire for holiness in your life tonight, why not? You've got to ask yourself that question. If in your mind you don't care about God and His Word, you have no burden for holiness, why is that the case? Don't presume that you therefore know forgiveness of sins. All of these things, they must come together. They do come together. David is justified here. His sins are covered. But as a justified man, a forgiven man, so God puts within him a desire for new obedience. So repentance leads to restoration and obedience. Thirdly, briefly, God is pleased to use means to lead us in the way of restoration. Now we're back into 2 Samuel chapter 12. Um, What I want you to notice here is that David is not the one who initiates this action of new obedience. He's not resistant, but he is given help and prompts as he walks in a way of obedience to God. You see, what, what is the right way to walk as a repentant believer? Well, surely it is to walk in God's revealed way. But at times, our walk in that way is inconsistent. We are slow sometimes to walk in His way. We're slow sometimes to see the way of obedience. So God is pleased to use people to bring us to repentance and to bring us to restoration of service. God used Nathan. He comes and brings the parable, tells a story, and says, Thou art the man. And now God is pleased to use Joab to bring David to the point he ought to be in his service of the Lord. You see, the desire to obey is a desire that may need some direction. We sometimes see that in new believers. They've come to faith in Christ and they're bursting with enthusiasm. And sometimes that enthusiasm goes in the wrong direction. Or sometimes there are other believers and they've come to faith in Christ, but they're like the Apostle Paul. What would their half me do? And they they need someone to come alongside and give them some direction. You think of the young believer. How should you direct a young believer when they come to Christ? Well, they ought to be told. Get to church. Be part of a biblical church and be regularly under the word. They should be told, read your Bible, pray, seek God's face. These are things that they ought to receive direction in. Get to the prayer meeting. Meet with God's people in prayer. These are things and directions that God uses to point us in the way of biblical restoration. The same sometimes true for the backslider. 
They don't know what to do next. They're not sure how they can serve the Lord. And there is the need for some direction. Because, you know, in our sin, we can be slow to see the will of God. And sometimes others see God's will more clearly than we do. Joab's sight was better than David's at this point. And God was pleased to use Joab to point David in the right direction. Dear child of God, be teachable. Be open, be humble. Realize that someone may come alongside you in your life and they may see the will of God for you more clearly than you see it yourself. And the hyper-independent spirit that exists in the Western world is against such things. Got to be realizing that people sometimes, they know exactly what we need to do if we're going to please the Lord. And be thankful for the gift of those who have come alongside and given you godly counsel. Point you in the way of obedience. God is pleased to use means to lead us in the way of restoration. Fourthly, finally, the one restored will then seek to be thorough in their obedience. And we have the account of David coming. He gathers the people together. They go to Rabbah. They fight against it and they take it. He takes the king's crown, puts the crown on David's head, and he is, if you like, given the place as the one who is there again leading the people. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. Here's a restoration of the recognition that David is indeed the king ruling over his people. It's an important feature. He then brings the people of Ammon under subjection. He then begins to control the situation in a way that's for the good of God's people, for the extension of God's kingdom against the enemies of God. And just simply saying that when he comes to take on the task, he does so without compromise. There's no compromise here. And so it is for the child of God when they come to restoration, when they come to repentance and obedience, there comes with that a desire for thorough obedience, wholehearted obedience, obedience in every part of life. Nothing left out. Family, society, church, whatever it might be, their desire, their burden is to obey God in all things in every way, thoroughly doing the will of God. It's a picture here. And I've certainly focused tonight in the message on the theme of David's personal restoration. I think the text points us in that direction. Chapter 11, verse 1, to chapter 12, verse 26, I think we'll be encouraged to see David's feelings in chapter 11, and now David's righteous actions in chapter 12. But two closing principles. Advances in God's kingdom by the hand of man is always a demonstration of God's grace. God is pleased to allow his kingdom to advance through human instruments. David is used of God to advance the kingdom at this point. Does he deserve that? Absolutely not. He's committed some of the most awful sins recorded in the Bible. And yet God is pleased to use him again for the advance of his kingdom. Have you been used to advance God's kingdom? A tract given out and someone came to Christ? Your children trusting in Christ? Involved in church service, Sabbath school teaching? 
preaching, leading, whatever it might be. Every advance in the kingdom through human instrumentality is a mark of God's grace. No preacher deserves to see a single soul saved under their ministry. No Sunday school teacher deserves to see a single soul saved under their teaching. No parent deserves to see a single child saved under their parenting. Every advance in the kingdom by the hand of man is a demonstration of God's grace. It's only God's grace that allows David to advance the kingdom at this time. It's precious to be used of God. And when we are used of God, remember, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. It wasn't because I was such a good person or did this or that. It was simply because God in his mercy was pleased to use the means that he's ordained. He gets all the glory. And we praise him for using us in the advance of his kingdom. And finally, not as a third or fourth finally, but finally, finally, David's victory here doesn't scrub the narrative. The chapter ends, but it doesn't remove what has happened in the previous events. What follows demonstrates that the previous events were very significant. And when you get to the end of chapter 12, you see David with a king upon his head, but under, or sorry, David with a crown upon his head, but under that crown is a man that is guilty of sin, a flawed king. And I gladly close tonight's message by telling you that we see David as a flawed king and there is therefore a greater holy king to come. David is not the righteous king, Messiah, saviour of sinners. He is a good king who himself must come to know forgiveness, but who is used of God in the bringing of this wind to this world of Messiah, a holy king who never repented and never needed to reform. Christ Jesus always righteous, always the king upon the throne. Let's close, please, in prayer. Eternal gods, you know the word that is required for the individual tonight. We've dealt with some very important issues. And, oh Lord, they do apply in different ways to different people. And so I ask, O oh God, that in your grace you would take the word that is the proper word and apply it to the right person. Oh God, I pray that each and every one of us would know the determination by your grace to obey your word, that we'd not be careless or half-hearted, but that we'd be clear in our needs to do those things that are pleasing in your sight. And so forgive us our sins. Help us to walk in new obedience. And we thank you above all that through David we see Christ Jesus, sometimes in comparison, sometimes by contrast. And we thank you for a Savior who did not need to repent of any sin or change his behavior in any way, a perfectly righteous Savior who died for our sins and not his own, 
Oh, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Encourage us and help us to walk with thee. May your blessing indeed rest and abide upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.